Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Here we try to make keeping up with literature easy, like being spoon-fed the latest research right through your earbuds. Now then, let's take a quick look ahead at everything that we're going to be covering this week. First off, we have the 100-year history of epinephrine, then beta-blocking in septic patients, after that TXA for TBIs yet again, and then an ultra-quick dose of TXA, but this time for subarachnoid hemorrhages, and then we're going to round it all off with decoding the ECGs in your COVID patients. This is the audio version of the past week summaries from the Journal Feed blog, which were brought to you this week by the perceptive Lisa Birdsall-Fort, Megan Breed, and Clay Smith. So, the first article from this week was titled, After a Century, Epinephrine's Role in Cardiac Arrest Resuscitation Remains Controversial, out of the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. Epinephrine is recommended to be given in the 2020 American Heart Association Resuscitation Guidelines. For anyone that's been trying to keep track, though, this is not the first time this recommendation has gone a little bit back and forth. Let's take a quick look at history to see exactly how we got where we are today. Epinephrine was first isolated in 1894, meaning that we could then use it to do experiments. And some of its potential for cardiac arrest was actually quite quickly recognized. Ten years later, in 1905, it was actually used in dogs, where we saw an improvement in return of spontaneous circulation, but we did not see any effect on neurological recovery. Fifty years later, after those initial experiments, we did more experiments. And that's how we refined the dosing strategy, which is where we got the dose of 1 milligram, which was used in the initial ACLS protocols in 1974. Since then, there's been a lot of controversy about whether or not epinephrine actually works at all. It was actually later dropped from the ACLS protocols. After that, we started to get a little bit more serious about trial design, though, doing some prospective studies which really came to a head with the Paramedic 2 trial. And this showed honestly the same thing that we saw 100 years ago in dogs. Improvements in ROSC, but no improvements in long-term neurological survival overall, maybe even some worsening. But subgroups did exist that might benefit from epinephrine, such as those with PEA or asystole. So following that, ILCOR actually added epinephrine back to its guidelines in 2019. The AHA followed a year later in 2020, and they highlighted that epinephrine may be beneficial, particularly when given early in patients with non-chockable rhythms. And that's essentially where we sit now. So in a spoonful, it's been more than 100 years of back and forth with epinephrine. Perhaps just 100 years more and we'll actually figure out what we're doing. Or who knows, maybe we'll all just replace it with ECMO by then. I don't know. Now then to the second article, which was titled The Effect of Ultra-Short-Acting Beta Blockers on Mortality in Patients with Persistent Tachycardia Despite Initial Resuscitation, a Systematic Review and a Meta-Analysis of Randomized Control Trials out of the journal CHEST. So we actually covered an article about this a little while ago, and that showed that there was a benefit to beta blockers in septic patients who were receiving norepinephrine. And we just discussed that epinephrine isn't exactly angel dust, so we know that catecholamines aren't always good for the heart, especially not too much of them. So if we give a beta blocker to tachycardic patients with sepsis, are we just treating some numbers that are above 100 and that's bad, or are we treating the patient and saving them from their hypersympathetic state. 
This was a systematic review of seven RCTs, altogether 613 patients who had sepsis with persistent tachycardia after initial resuscitation. And these people actually went on to receive esmolol or lendiolol. If you're not familiar with lendiolol, then it has similar properties to esmolol, except it isn't licensed in America, and that might be why you haven't heard of it. The aforementioned initial resuscitation included some amount of fluids and vasopressors in most of the trials. So five of the trials were actually used for a meta-analysis to assess the 28-day mortality. And there was actually what they found was a 32% reduced mortality rate in those who received a beta blocker compared to those who got placebo. So the overall mortality rate was 37% in those with the beta blockers and 55% in the placebo group. Now, my favorite readout of all time, always, I love this number, is the number needed to treat, which was 5.5 for these beta blockers. That's pretty good. I'd say that's pretty good. Now, the heart rate was significantly decreased in all those who received beta blockers, but the MAP was not, and that's really important because people are going to be nervous about giving a beta blocker, which is known to, you know, decrease your blood pressure, to septic patients. There was quite a bit of heterogeneity between these studies, and mortality rates actually varied widely between the centers. Five trials were done in China, one in Japan, and one in Italy, which might change some of the generalizability. Overall, this actually looks quite encouraging, but some large RCTs are definitely going to be warranted to confirm this finding. So in a spoonful, in persistently tachycardic septic patients, after initial resuscitation, receiving a ultra-short-acting beta blocker reduced the 28-day mortality with a number needed to treat of 5.5. Now then, the next article was the efficiency and safety of transoxemic acid in acute traumatic brain injury a systematic review and meta-analysis of randomized control trials out of the Journal of Intensive Care Medicine. So the CRASH-3 trial actually came out not too long ago, which showed a slight mortality benefit to TXA and TBIs. Then more recently, a pre-hospital RCT didn't show any benefit, and the Brain Project group actually found some harm to TXA in patients who had isolated or severe TBIs. A lot of good trials have come out on this recently. It's nice to see some effort to, you know, put them together. So this, of course, was a meta-analysis of 9 RCTs totaling almost 15,000 patients altogether. This found that TXA did not reduce mortality. The confidence interval for the risk ratio spanned from 0.88 to 1.02. There was also no improvement in disability scales. Overall, there was also no harm. But you have to keep in mind that the Brain Project study that I mentioned wasn't included, and they actually definitely found harm. And on top of it, this would have added another 10% of patients to the pool, so its absence is really quite notable. In a spoonful, taking most of the recent data into account, a meta-analysis showed no benefit nor harm to TXA in traumatic brain injuries. Then after that, we have the fourth article, which is titled Ultra-Early Transoxemic Acid After Subarachnoid Hemorrhage, Ultra, a randomized controlled trial out of the journal Lancet. If it bleeds, we can put TXA in it. That's what we can do. Some studies show that this helps, others, and eh, not really. But it's such a temptingly low-hanging fruit to potentially better outcomes that it's really popularly tested. If this could save lives for people who otherwise wouldn't be able to get more definite treatment, then great, this would be a big deal. Now then, the mother of all non-compressible bleeds is arguably pretty much any bleed coming off the circle of Willis. Can TXA help with that? 
This study was done in the Netherlands, an RCT of 955 patients with CT-proven subarachnoid hemorrhages. Now then, since we're talking about the brain, there's actually some concern for delayed cerebral ischemia, which can be caused by TXA. To get around this in this study, they actually tried to use short durations of TXA treatment, and the other half just got placebo. The TXC group got one gram of TXA bolus and then one gram every eight hours for only the following 24 hours. The primary outcome was disability measured on a modified Rankin scale, which was assessed by telephone call at six months. A good score was zero to three and a poor score was four to six. There was no benefit to TXA. 60% of the TXA group and 64% of the usual care group all had good outcomes. Some limitations for this was that the treatment group was not blinded to the treating physicians. And then about 15% of both groups had no causative aneurysm found on scanning. So in a spoonful, short-term IV TXA for patients with subarachnoid hemorrhage with suspected aneurysm rupture did not improve clinical outcomes of patients at six months. And then finally, the last article, which was titled Electrocardiographic Manifestations of COVID-19 under the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. Ever the overachiever, and despite being a respiratory virus, some studies show that up to 90% of COVID-19 patients actually demonstrate at least one ECG abnormality. And these are associated with an increased risk of in-hospital mortality and a need for mechanical ventilation, so they're kind of important. These ECG changes are caused by a host of things. The authors listed a few, and they included cytokine storm, hypoxemic injury, electrolyte abnormalities, plaque rupture, coronary vasospasm, microthombi, or direct endothelial or myocardial injury. We'll go through a few of the ECG findings that you might expect to see in your COVID-19 patients. Most commonly is going to be supraventricular tachycardias. Number one, not surprisingly at all, is going to be sinus tachycardia, and then that's going to be followed by atrial fibrillation, both independent predictors of illness severity, myocardial injury, and poor outcomes. These arrhythmias are mostly driven by hypovolemia, hypoperfusion, hypoxia, fever, pain, and anxiety. All hallmarks of being, you know, sick. The next category of arrhythmias will be malignant ventricular dysrhythmias, which are caused by QT prolonging medications, metabolic abnormalities, and myocardial inflammation. Here, monomorphic ventricular tachycardias are going to be the most common. But in some cases of cardiac arrest in COVID-19 patients, you'll also possibly see PEA and asystoles. Then we have bradycardias and AV blocks, which are not that common in these populations, but some interval changes or axis deviations can be seen. Be on the lookout for signs of RV strain, as this can be a sign of PE, and we already know that COVID-19 patients can be quite hypercoagulopathic. As a quick reminder of the classic signs of RV strain, on ECG they're going to look like a prominent R wave in V1 and V2, and ST depression or T-wave inversions in the inferior leads and in V1 through V4. MI mimics like ST elevations or depressions, T-wave inversions, or even pathological Q-waves may be present due to myocardial injury, but in this case caused by COVID rather than thrombus. So these all, of course, have to be distinguished apart from an acute MI because that could kill them even faster than COVID might. Now then, in a spoonful, if you can see it on an ECG, then we think that COVID really kind of could be the cause for it, which is sad. 
There's a long list of factors causing many of these abnormalities. But be most on the lookout for supraventricular tachycardias, more specifically sinus tachy. Now then, that's it. That's all. That's all we've got for this week. That's it. That's it. That's all I've got. So let's do a quick review of everything that we learned this week to help you guys remember and keep on top of it for your next shift. After more than a hundred years of hot and cold, epinephrine is currently in favor. After that, we learned that esmolol for persistently tachycardic septic patients may reduce mortality. Again, that number needed to treat was 5.5. After that, the latest meta-analysis of TXA for TBIs shows no benefit and no harm. Then try and try again, but TXA just doesn't seem to work very well for things in your head. There was no benefit to short-term TXA on subarachnoid hemorrhages for six-month disability. Then, following that, we had the last article, which was COVID-19 putting the C in ECG, because it can cause just about anything except for that sinus tachycardia is going to be the most common and is a predictor of poor outcomes. Now then, you've earned them, and we offer them CME credits provided through a partnership that we have with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org. Links to all the articles summarized can be found there as well. And if you haven't already, feel free to subscribe to our newsletter, and then you can get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here at the Journal Feed is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.